Hi, I'm Marilyn, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> and uh, Heather uh, talked about serenity. Actually, I'm old, and it's more like <laughs> senility. <laughs> but they look the same sometimes. But I'm really grateful to be here. And this is a wonderful conference. Grateful to the committee for including me in this, this wonderful event. Thank you for that. And the speakers have been so marvelous. Beth last night touched my heart so much because I'm a mom. And uh, I drank. I drank a lot during my momhood. And I experienced a little bit more forgiveness in that talk last night. Thank you for that. And thank you, Heather. Uh, Heather was there at the airport and has not left my side when I needed her and has given me time to sleep when I needed some sleep <laughs> and could not have been a more wonderful host. And I look forward to a continuing friendship because she's going to move to Los Angeles one of these days and I hope will become a part of our group. We need people like Heather and I need people like you. I am fed by this fellowship. I told you that I'm an alcoholic and this amazing fellowship has kept me sober now for over 29 years. And no credit of my own. And that's really all I have to say. Uh, now, I'll elaborate on that point. But I, I've said it all because it tells you that I'm an alcoholic, and we know what that means. It means I have this dreadful terminal illness that affects me, but it affects the people around me even more than it affects me causing chaos, destruction, pulling people down with me. And yet there's something so powerful in this program that my disease has been arrested for over 29 years. And that attests to something very powerful because great minds sit around thinking about curing alcoholics, stopping them from drinking. People at the Mayo Clinic, they put rats in cages and feed them alcohol and take copious notes. And they have not found a cure for alcoholism. We haven't found a cure, but we've arrested our disease one day at a time. We've done what no human power seems to be able to do. When I first came to the program, I didn't think I needed the program. Other people thought I needed the program. <laughs> but when I came first in 1969, I had been unemployed and unemployable for some time. And uh, I'm going to do something here. I had been unemployed, and I'd been sitting in my garage drinking beer for about five or six years. <laughs> but I didn't think I needed Alcoholics Anonymous, and I came in just to see why other people were sending me there. And I listened to things that I didn't understand. I sat in the back. I didn't have a sponsor. I didn't like the bright lights in the rooms. I'd been in a garage for a long time, sort of like the blind cave fish. And so I listened to people say, this disease is an allergy of the body, an obsession of the mind. It's a spiritual malady. And I thought, what, are they, what could that be? What are they talking about? A spiritual malady. Well, I had been an atheist for many years. I had considered the idea of God when I was a small child, but I came from a long line of atheists and they kind of discouraged that. And there were other beings like Count Dracula and Santa Claus and werewolves. And I kind of put God in that category. And one by one, I came to believe that they don't really exist. And just a few years ago, I, I came to the conclusion that Santa Claus does not exist. Now, it's my opinion only, what I say at the podium, so I don't want to discourage any of you. But I kind of dismissed God with all of those other supernatural beings. And then I went away to study science, and that kind of confirmed that if there are answers, they can be answered by man-discovered woman, man and woman-discovered laws of chemistry and physics and so forth. Yes. <laughs> it is. It is ridiculous, but that's where I was. 
So this thing about the spiritual malady was baffling to me. And the obsession of the mind, I didn't know what obsession was. What it was was that I had always lived in obsession, so I'd never been apart from obsession, so I didn't know what obsession was. Kind of like a fish living in water saying, where's the water? Well, (laughs) but my obsessions were of a negative nature. I am still an obsessive person. I will always be obsessive. That seems to be my nature. But what sobriety has given me is positive obsessions. For example, I love broccoli. I don't stop eating it. Uh, It's not a problem for me, but sometimes for you if you come to my house. But (laughs) but it's a positive obsession. Love it. Love it. (laughs) And an allergy of the body. Allergy suggested hives or a rash. And I thought, what is this? I examined my arms. And I didn't have this allergy, I thought. Allergy was like, the guy said, my uncle died from a bee sting. And I said, oh my gosh, that's terrible. Was he allergic? And he said, no, he was a tightrope walker. (laughs) (laughs) But that's what I think of with allergy. And I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it at all. So, like many people who just don't get it, who just don't receive it, who make themselves unavailable to the program, I went out and sat in my garage for another three years or so. And then when I came back in on February 8, 1972, I had been beaten into submission by alcohol. It has a way of doing that, doesn't it? Yes. And I became teachable. I became willing I wasn't at first, though, but I made a 12-step call. And a person came out to visit me. And her name was Lorena, and she is sober to this day. So it's good to do 12-step work. It keeps you sober for a long time. (laughs) She came to see me and said, you think you have a drinking problem? And I was pretty shaky. And I said, well, I don't know, but other people think I do. And... I'm willing to give this program another another try, but I have certain requirements. She <laughs> kind of rolled her eyes and said, let's hear them. She said, well, I don't want to go to a big meeting with a lot of noise and lights. There are some of these big active groups in Los Angeles, and that's not for me. I'm a quiet intellectual. I'm a scientist, I told her. <laughs> Again, she rolled her eyes and said, well, we'll find a dark meeting for you. <laughs> and, <laughs> And I said, and I want to meet somebody named Marion. Do you know Marion? Well, what I meant was that I had seen this person, Marion, that I could listen to. I had seen her and admired her from afar. I was always too timid, too frightened to go up and talk to her. But I said, She's, she just sort of glows from the inside out. Hey, do you know Marion? And my 12-stepper, Lorena, said, no, I haven't met her, but... If you come to AA and she's still around, you'll probably meet up with her. We all come to know one another over the years. And that that kind of made me sad, but I said, okay, I'll go with you. Now go home and come back and get me. Because <laughs> I was getting a little bit tense, and I knew I needed a bit of beer to steady my nerves. And she said, no, I'll, I'll just stay right here. And I said, but but I'm kind of tired, I need a nap. And she said, well, lie on the couch. I'll just, I'll watch you. (laughs) And she stayed with me. She babysat and took me to a meeting. And it was dark and it was quiet and I was glad because I could sleep. (laughs) My head was pounding by this time. And after the first speaker... I heard a lot of noise and shuffling, and it made my head pound again. It was the coffee break, and, and I couldn't wait for it to be over, wait for people to get back in their seats, quiet down, make my head stop hurting. But before I drifted off to sleep, the leader got up to the podium and said, Tonight, our main speaker is Marion W. And I looked up, and there she was, my, my radiant being, my Marion and there was something that just said, wow, that's, that's an amazing coincidence. And I just kind of filed it away. And I listened to her, and I heard my story. I heard about the kind of fear I had. 
She talked about being married and fiercely dependent on her husband. He walked around the kitchen and she tried to hold on to his ankles. And <laughs> yes. So after the meeting, I ran up and I dropped to the floor and I grabbed her ankles and I said, Hey, Miriam, would you be my sponsor? I just don't know where those words came from, and I'm glad they did come forth because she said, Yes, if you'll if you'll go to my meetings. And I said, I'll do anything, Marion. And she whipped out a meeting directory and outlined a bunch of meetings in this big active group in West LA. One of those terrifying groups that I'd been to, and I said, Marion, I, I can't do that. I'm afraid of meetings like that. And I can't. And she said, I understand, but I can't be your sponsor. We have to go to the same meetings if it's to be effective. And thank God I said, even that. All right, I'll do the, even that. <laughs> now, I had known those meetings because every time I came into Alcoholics Anonymous in my furtive runs into the program from the garage, somebody would take me in tow and say, I know what you need, and would take me off to a big active meeting where they said, Hello, how are you? Do you have a sponsor? Do you have a home group? Do you go to lots of meetings? Now, the answer was no to all those questions, but I didn't like to talk about it. And, and so here I was in one of these big lighted groups with people asking all those questions, but now I, could, I had answers to those questions because I had a sponsor. I had a set of meetings. I had a home group, and it wasn't too bad, but uh, I still had had problems because I took myself into the fellowship, the self that drove me into the garage. People, people were my downfall. <laughs> Alcohol helped, but, <laughs> but they'd say things like, how are you? And I never knew how to answer that question, and they were doing it in Alcoholics Anonymous again. I'd try, I'd say, well, I'd spend maybe 15 minutes on depression and then I'd explain my anxiety for another 20 and I'd look up and they'd run away in terror. <laughs> so I'd try other things and Marion told me to come early to the meeting and I said, people don't like me and she said, well, come anyway and let's just give it a try. Now go over and talk to those people. So I went over to a little threesome and I said, Hi, I am a scientist. <laughs> yeah, as predicted, they just kind of turned and went elsewhere, formed other referee sons, and I was standing there all alone. But that allowed me to go back and say, See to Marion, they don't like me. And she asked me what I said, and she said, Well, let's try something else. Just say your name and tell them how long you've been sober and see what happens. And I tried that. Hi, I'm Marilyn, and I've been sober for five days. And at this point, they turned toward me and said things like, keep coming back, and it's going to be all right, and patting me on the back, and I could even tell them I'm a scientist now, and they just kept smiling and nodding, and it was better. And then things got harder. I asked Marion, I said, what do you do if somebody says, how are you? And she just kind of laughed. She said, Marilyn, most people regard that as a form of greeting. They don't expect a long answer. So just, just try this. Say, fine, how are you? So I went home and I practiced in front of a mirror and came back. And, and it came up very soon. And how are you? I heard the question and I said, fine, how are you? <laughs> And much to my surprise, they just started talking and talking and talking. And oh, I was excited. I, I looked around and I saw that other people might be looking and they probably thought we were in a conversation. Like people. And I could hardly wait to get back to Marion. And I, and I said, oh, it's, we were in a conversation. And Marion said, that's beautiful. What did she say? I was on the spot, and I said, I don't know. I was thinking about myself. <laughs> so 
Marion gave me words like self-obsession and told me to go back, try it again, and this time listen, and she was going to give me a little quiz. And she began to do that. She'd quiz me after somebody's talk. And I desperately, desperately wanted Marion's approval because I could only form sick and hideous dependencies. And yet, even though my motive was not good, it served me well because I did many of the activities. I did many of the things that were good for us in this fellowship to get Marion's approval. There's little pats on the head. Because of Marion, I began to listen, listen to other people. And much to my astonishment, people had amazing stories. They'd come out of blackouts, and they'd be holding up a bank, or sometimes be in Newfoundland. Uh, amazing. I'd come out of a blackout, and I'd be in a garage. And, and as I began to listen, other things began to happen. I began to feel a lot of, of pain deep and terrible pain because I began to hear my story and Alcoholics Anonymous gave me my story as I said when I first came to Alcoholics Anonymous I didn't think I was an alcoholic I had to be influenced by this program deeply before I could admit to my innermost self that I had a classic case of this disease at first it was simply by listening to you and then I began to be called on to talk at the podium, and then I realized that I was seeing my life in the context of Alcoholics Anonymous, in the context of the other stories I heard. And I began to see a pattern. I began to see things about my own life. I heard a lot of people say that they remembered their first drink, and I could look back on that time when I was eight years old. I was in Ohio because I was born in Ohio, and I grew up here. So it's nice to be back home. And while I was in Ohio, my mom said, you have a toothache, and we have a, an Ohio remedy. And she filled up a little cotton ball with scotch and told me to put it on my tooth. And I quickly sucked that cotton ball dry <laughs> and asked for a refill. <laughs> and she left the bottle of scotch in the room, and I had many refills and enjoyed my toothache all night long. <laughs> And that just started a wonderful flirtation with alcohol. It didn't occur to me the next morning that I had to find that bottle of scotch and take care of every problem in my life. I was a slow learner. But every time I came into contact with alcohol, it was pretty dramatic. I didn't meet up with it again until I was about 12 years old, and I'd gone to a party. My mom worked at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and we had gone over to the officers' club for a party, and there were a whole bunch of mixed drinks, half-filled in glasses. And there was a stirring in my heart that was kind of cotton ball. <laughs> Deep memory. And I began to finish those half-empty glasses and kind of went into a blackout, my first. And as I came out of it, I was out in the bushes with my mother's boss, a colonel in the Air Force, and I was looking up at him saying, this is the happiest moment of my life, as he was pawing and groping. And I just want this moment to go on forever, my life of 12 years. <laughs> and then I went back into a blackout and came out of it again, and now I was back in the officers club and this time I was pawing and groping the colonel uh, yeah and he was looking real nervous <laughs> trying to explain to his wife that he had never seen this child in his life before and didn't know what she was doing but then I was back in a blackout and there were memories of lying down on the back seat of the car being taken home singing at the top of my lungs and it was a happy wonderful joyful evening <laughs> not for my mom but it was wonderful but again, I didn't discover that that was the secret of life for me. That didn't come until later, and I experienced a lot of pain of living. I was born into a wholesome family. They were kind and loving to me. Instead, well, it's a funny thing. In Alcoholics Anonymous, we come into this fellowship, and we're surrounded by love. It doesn't feel like love. It just feels like horrible intrusion and <laughs> people putting horrible things upon us. 
Are you going to lots of meetings? Here, here's a sponsor for you. Uh, that's love. It's love that saves our lives. And we respond to that if we stay sober, usually, and we become loving in return. We begin, begin to work with others and live lives of service. We become loving beings. I was born into a loving family, but instead of modeling that behavior, instead of becoming a loving being myself, I had a sense of entitlement that everybody's kind of trying to make little Marilyn happy. She seems so miserable. So the world's going to treat me like that. Everybody has been put on earth to grant my every whim and desire. So you can imagine my shock when I got out into the real world and people didn't understand this agenda. They were taking care of themselves and their own families. And, and I felt bitter and a lot of resentment. People didn't like me enough. They didn't respect me. They didn't give me my due. I went away to school, and somehow, some way, I thought, maybe if I could become a great scientist, I could win a Nobel Prize and pin a badge, like this badge right here that would say, Marilyn Slater, Nobel Prize winner. And then I'd finally get people to respect me, and I'd finally have some friends. I could walk into a room, and, well, all I ever wanted was just what everybody else had, I thought which was friends. I wanted to be able to maybe walk into a room and have everybody stop doing what they were doing and just turn toward the door and begin to murmur, Marilyn, Marilyn, and maybe drop to the floor and creep toward me. And anything short of that was, you don't like me. Now I realize after much training in Alcoholics Anonymous that even if it had happened repeatedly, I would have said to myself, but you don't really mean it. <laughs> there was nothing, nothing that could fill that deep hunger of, you don't like me enough, you don't respect me, you don't pay enough attention to me, you don't give me what I want. Many years later, after taking the steps, I began to understand this basic principle that anybody who goes after happiness is destined to be miserable. If that's our one goal, to seek love only, to seek happiness, then we ensure our misery. I didn't know that. I thought I had to work really hard to get happiness and your love and respect. So I spent my every waking hour worrying about things like that. So I spent a lot of miserable time. But I'd gone away to Chicago to study science and still miserable. But there was a, a strange and happy moment because I went to work in a lab to get a job and a pale, tall scientist walked out to give me a little test to see if I could get the job. And he looked like, he was all pale, he looked like he had been in a laboratory for years and years. A real scientist with a big white lab coat and and he had a slide rule in his pocket. Now, you young folks, a slide rule is an old-fashioned calculator. <laughs> I've lived a long time. It's the way we used to do it. And I just looked at that slide rule, and it sort of spelled science with a big capital S. And I just, oh, I wanted to grab and fondle his slide rule. <laughs> and in a couple of weeks, I did. <laughs> And he spoke the language of science. He talked about Gegenbauer polynomials and Schrodinger's equation. And, and no man had ever talked to me like that before. <laughs> and I kind of dazzled him with the hypergeometric function. And he said, do you want to get married? And I said, yes, yes, yes. And, and here we went off to Ohio and... His dad was a Lutheran minister, of all things, and, and we were in this little religious ceremony that I'd never heard before, and his father was saying things like, do you, William, take this creature? Uh, something like that. In sickness and in health, better or worse, love and cherish. I was kind of hearing the words. And do you, Marilyn, etc. So when he asked that to Bill, Bill said, I do, and he had absolutely no idea what he was agreeing to, what he was letting himself in for. But he's a man of his word, a noble kind of guy, a man that keeps commitments, and he 
he hung in. And I heard those same words and said, yes, yes, I do. But what I meant was, now now I can attach to you like a tick on a dog and suck out your life. (laughs) Well, I had to because I had done that with my family. I just depended on them for all of my needs and I was just this tick in the forest waiting for a warm mammal to come along. (laughs) Poor Bill, he was that one. And so that started yet another sick and hideous dependency. And it allowed me to stay alive. And Bill is a good man. Just to leap way ahead, to let you know the end, we celebrated 43 years together last August. And... uh, And that attests to the power of this program, certainly as much as the fact that I've been sober over a quarter of a century. And he had a lot of years of in sickness and no doubt hanging in because he's a noble guy. And back in those years, our relationship was strained and strange. It was, you don't love me, do you? Seeking that reassurance. He said, sure I do. Now I've got to go to work. Oh, pain. You've got to stay here and comfort me. And say, well, you've got to go to work too, he'd say to me. But we've got to talk about our relationship and why it's so terrible, why I'm so miserable. And he'd say, well, all right. Uh, Okay, five minutes. Tell me why you're so miserable today. And I'd say, well, you don't take me skiing. And he'd look at me and say, all right, we'll plan a skiing trip. And then I'd say... No, 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 no. You didn't think of it first. (laughs) And it would get so bad that I would punish him with silence for two or three years. And (laughs) that really upset me because he never seemed to notice. And I realized it was just great relief for him, probably. So I was building up resentment. I was... By this time, we had moved to California, and I was working in a lab, and my work was not going well. I was trying to do research, and instead, I would spill a lot of things in this lab and blow up things, and and feeling bad, and I felt strange about my around my lab mates. Their work seemed to be going well. I was a teaching assistant too, and. Around this time, there were parties going on. I'd go to parties with my husband, and that's when alcohol became a real solution for parties. I didn't like parties because people ask questions, how are you, how's it going, things I could not decipher. I had no idea how to deal with social interactions like that, and it made me nervous and tense, and they put a drink in my hand, and I felt better. And I could talk for 10 or 12 minutes. I was a fast drinker, so I only had 10 or 12 good minutes before I was on the floor. (laughs) But it was good. (laughs) But one weekend, something amazing happened, and that was that I, I had taken a big exam to see if I could stay in graduate school. And I got the results, and I opened the letter, and it said, Congratulations, you have passed. And I... Oh, that was the happiest moment of my life. It was what I always wanted, to continue in science on the way to the Nobel Prize, finally to get some respect <laughs> and to get a few people to like me. And, and it, was so, it was such a happy moment. And what did I do? Well, I didn't call my husband. It was probably one of those years when I wasn't talking to him. I didn't call my friends. I didn't have any friends. I just had resentments. And... I knew that what I had to do to contain my joy, not to explode, was to go to the store and get a great big bottle of wine and bring it home and have a party. And I did just that. And I drank that half gallon of wine on my floor and played music and celebrated. And the room went around so beautifully. And I was happy, but I could contain it. I didn't explode. And it was wonderful. Now, the next day, we were scheduled to go with some of our students 
to Malibu in a big van and collect sea creatures in some plastic containers. And so we piled into this van and we started to Malibu. And I had made the mistake of eating a hearty breakfast. And after churning away for half the trip, I knew that we were going to part company. And so I had the foresight to reach behind me and grab a plastic container intended for sea creatures and <laughs> deposited my breakfast and slapped the lid on and held it there on my lap. And the other TAs in the van, teaching assistants in the van, and the students were looking at me. And they said, are you sick? What's wrong? And I said, no, no, it's it's all right. I, I got the results of the comprehensive exam, and I, I passed, and they were trying to follow along. And I, I said, and I had to celebrate. And they said, you went to a party? And I said, no, I just got this big bottle of wine, and I took it home and drank it all. And, and they weren't following. And, <laughs> but I learned two very important things that weekend, and that was that what I needed to stay on planet Earth and to function in this world was an over-the-counter drug. I can get it in a grocery store or a liquor store, many places, off the shelf. Lab alcohol was more readily available in those days. And I also have to be careful who I talk to about this, because a lot of people just don't seem to understand. But that uh, certainly changed the course of my life. After I discovered that I can self-medicate, I began to do it pretty much on a daily basis, and I felt like I'm doing the best work of my life. In reality, I completely stopped working at that point. I just felt like I was working. I came into work, but I hid away in a refrigerator, a big refrigerator, because that's where I'd stashed my beer, and I changed my experiments to, from the biochemistry of muscle to the biochemistry of muscle at low temperatures, and just moved in with the beer and stayed there for a few years until the director wondered what I'd been doing in that refrigerator, and that seemed to be the end of my career in science, because I couldn't remember. Um, and I went home to think about it and mailed the keys back three months later because I still couldn't think of what I'd been doing in that refrigerator. And anybody with half a brain, especially a non-alcoholic, would say, wow, this is a real alcoholic, classic case of alcoholism. Answer yes to a lot of those 20 questions didn't occur to me that I was or even that I drank. That was a necessity, like oxygen. And so now I was at home and getting pretty tense because people walked up and down the street and I knew they were looking in those teeny cracks between the Venetian blinds at the crazy lady in there. And, and the Grim Reaper would come for me almost on a daily basis. And I could see this hooded figure of death coming. And, and I'd drink more. And I'd think, is he going to take me away today? And he didn't take me away, and I'd drink more in relief. And then I'd think, he's going to come again tomorrow. And sure enough, he'd come again, but he'd go away. Now I realize it was the postman. <laughs> but because of things like that, I, Alcoholics Anonymous gives us words for things, and I realized what I was trying to do was make a geographic but I only got to my garage because there was a refrigerator out there and I filled it up with beer to sit down and plan my trip and stayed there for five or six years planning my trip. And, and that would have been okay, but the problem is that our house started filling up with small children and they were mine. And I didn't know how that was happening. And I guess I'd pass through the house occasionally and... And now this little Ohio girl was springing to life again because way back in Ohio, I had hope. I'd look up at the stars because the sky's real clear here and, and I'd think, what's it all about? I want to be good. I want to have a sense of purpose. I want to fulfill my role in life. And I wanted to be good. There was something deep inside that wanted to be a good mom. I knew those kids were mine. And yet I couldn't get out of the garage. Every now and then I'd go in the house, but I'd always have to steady my nerves. And after I steadied my nerves, I found it hard to walk. But I kept thinking, I've 
got to be a good mom. One time I was in the house and I was holding an infant and I heard the voice of Paul Harvey on the radio and he was blaring away and he was saying something like, women alcoholics go downhill faster than men. They usually have about 10 years between the first drink and when they're institutionalized. Page three. And, <laughs> and I started counting. But as he was talking, it was making me so nervous. And I thought, I've got to go turn off this terrible man. And, and I put my hand over my little daughter's head because I knew I'd probably hit a wall on the way to Paul Harvey. And I was trying to get there, trying to cradle my little daughter, and just sat down. time I came in, and there was a great big one in the house, and I thought, has so much time gone by? And it was my mother-in-law, and she had been there for a long time. But now, the kids were fed and clean and clothed, and life was going on without me, of course, and there seemed to be this happy family going on inside of the house, and I was not a part of it. I was some mangy creature, like a possum that had wandered into the backyard, and they'd set out bowls of food now and then. But they liked it, I think, that I, that I stayed in the garage. Uh, now, my mother-in-law, and my mother would come, take care of things when my mother-in-law got tired. This alternation of grandmas to make sure that the kids were okay, that they were not in danger. My husband could go to work and feel that things were safe. And I sat in the garage wondering how it went so terribly wrong. And they'd come out and give me little talks about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I resented them so terribly. I resented them for everything, for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself, for taking care of the family, for talking to me about alcoholism. But I wanted their approval desperately, because I've always wanted everybody's approval. So that's why I began to visit Alcoholics Anonymous. The first time I could not understand that I was a garden variety alcoholic. Those words didn't mean anything to me. The second time around, in my state of willingness, because Marian taught me to listen, I began to see that, indeed, it is classic alcoholism. And I soon began, began to understand that, that I have a soul sickness. I am sick and miserable. And I could see the contrast. I could see that Marian and other people, especially active old-timers, were joyful, really happy. And yet they told stories about the kind of misery that I had always felt. I also began to understand allergy of the body in a different way. I began to understand that I have a kind of sensitivity to alcohol that means that my system reacts to that first drink, such that if I have a drink, I can't predict how many drinks I'm going to have. Sometimes I can. That's the surprise. That's why it's so cunning and baffling and powerful. Sometimes it's just right. Other times, I just go way over the edge and people carry me home. And I never know which time it's going to be. Moreover, I can't predict my behavior after that first drink. So I have a sensitivity to alcohol. Alcohol behaves in me in a different way from normal people. And the obsession of the mind, aside from all the negative obsessions that I began to understand that I had, is that once I have that first drink, I become obsessed with where are the other bottles and how much is in each bottle and how much has each one been watered down and where is that case of beer that I thought I got the other night and I don't see now and the obsession of the mind how am I going to get my next drink and is there going to be enough to last all night and I'm too drunk to drive and I can't go out and get more what am I going to do the panic the tightening of the throat the obsession of the mind and I began to listen to people talk about guilt and I realized now that I was sober for a while that I could not bear the pain that I felt about being at best an absentee mom, about the abuse that I heaped upon my husband, my mother, my mother-in-law for just taking care of the family, for squandering that opportunity in the lab. I felt so bad. 
I thought, I don't even know my husband. I need a divorce because it's immoral to stay in this house and not even know this man. And my good sponsor, Marianne, looked at me and she said, you want to leave this man after he stood by you all these years and been a good, good guy and held things together. Now you think you just you want to walk out. That's, that's being moral, you think. And I thought, well, okay. What do I do? How do I solve this problem of this relationship? I don't even know him. And she said, are you going to lots of meetings? And I went over and talked to somebody else. How do I solve this problem? How do I get to the heart of this relationship and solve it? Well, do you have a sponsor? Are you going to lots of meetings? Okay, I'll talk about another intractable problem. I feel so much guilt about my children. I don't know what to do. I feel so bad. I am so guilty. And they said, well, are you working with newcomers? Uh, <clears throat> now, let me explain. I have these three children, and I feel terrible about them, so much guilt. Well, have you written your inventory? No, I mean practical things. Home is painful, painful. Okay, I'll try another intractable problem. I want to go to work. I'd love to go back to work, and I don't think I can ever go back to work again. What do I do? We have, a, have you written an inventory? <laughs> Ask somebody else. Explain the problem. A job, like resume and paycheck, that's work. Will I ever go to work again? How can I get a job? How can I go to work again? And they'd say, well, do you have a job at this meeting? Have you taken a commitment here? Do you have commitments at all? How about Southern California Convention? Have you volunteered for that? And I just felt like I was in a movie, that old movie, The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. <laughs> all, of, all of you folks had pods in your rooms, and I just heard the same thing. But, but I had nothing else to do. I had tried every possible agenda for my own happiness and had given up, so I... I'd tried the suggestions of Alcoholics Anonymous and, and wrote a fearless and searching moral inventory of my mother-in-law. <laughs> my sponsor indulged me. She listened to the whole thing, and she just smiled and nodded and shared a few feelings of her own. And then she got me to focus on what she called my part, which did not sound good to me. <laughs> but I had to write a couple of other inventories uh, before I could even get to my part, my character defects, and I found that painful indeed. I believe that if our program ended with the fourth step, it would be good, but all of us alcoholics would leap off tall buildings like lemmings. Uh, it generated a lot of pain for me to come face to face with my sick and hideous parasitic nature, all the lies I had told. The abusive nature, the way I would talk to my mother-in-law, who was only doing good, the way I would scream at my own good mother, the way I'd been so mean to Bill all these years, and my children that had deserved so much better. That was horrible to look at all of that. But it would be a good thing if it ended with the fourth step. It would be a societal good, because it would rid the world of alcoholics. <laughs> But there's eight other steps, so it's good for us, too. And that's the eight, the eight other steps, beginning with step five, were the unwinding steps, how to come out of that morass of what I was, what I had become through all that drinking, through my selfish and self-centered nature. And I had lots of old-timers to teach me how to do that. But mostly my home group, this big active group, would talk to me about working with others. And I began to do that, and I have come over the years to sponsor many, many women, and I love them. It's a big part of my program. And I have learned about my own life through the women I sponsor. I have learned solutions in Alcoholics Anonymous by allowing them to flow through me from my sponsor to my, we call them babies in, in California, through my, to my sponsees. And that is a big, big part of my program. The hard part 
in the beginning was this whole God part. I didn't believe in God. But it was funny. And people, people in Alcoholics Anonymous said, that doesn't matter. We talk about higher power for a reason. A lot of people come in with a kind of turned-off feeling about God. The program is designed for people like us. There's a whole chapter called We Agnostics. Read that, people would say to me. And I, I read that, and it, it made some sense. Talked about kind of applying the scientific method to Alcoholics Anonymous, and I just thought about that, and I, I just had to say that, goodness, amazing things are happening here. Everybody that gets up to the podium talks about something that just can't happen. Really. We come from all kinds of places, like jails and hospitals and garages, <laughs> and yet we begin to heal one another. We tell one another, take up your beds and walk. We bring one another back from the gates of insanity and death. And humans can't do that, given, I mean, look who we are, the clientele around here. <laughs> There's no way that can happen by human power alone. And I just began to think that, wow, there is something going on here a lot more powerful than, than human power. And I had an open mind. And one day I just said to it, if you're there, I'd really like to get to know you. And if you're really there, I'm willing to go on any path you pick for me. And I was hoping for blaring music and maybe a big chariot coming down in clouds, and that, that didn't happen. What happened was that that was the way I was taking the third step and the seventh step, kind of all rolled into one. It was saying, I think something's there, and I really want to tap into it. I want to know you, I was saying to God. And the evidence that the transformation had already occurred by my participation in Alcoholics Anonymous was that second part, and I am willing to go on any path you pick for me. Back in Ohio, if I had ever tried to pray, it would have been a test like, God, are you there? If you're there, give me a sign, and if you're really there, get to work for me. God as Santa Claus. In other words, okay, God, get me a good grade on this test. Heal my father who was sick God always failed those tests but now in Alcoholics Anonymous this was a different kind of prayer if you're there I'll go on any path you pick for me it had already been done God had found me because I was reaching out to God for a long time I, I didn't say God it was sort of like when people would say our father or God grant me I would start out by saying force that somehow orchestrated things so that Marion was speaking at that first meeting that I came back to. And that was kind of hard, and I'd get kind of behind in the prayer. And, and, and then I just sort of shortened it to God, but I knew what I meant. But I had an open mind, and things were happening. And I was following along, and one day the veil parted. And it was a funny thing. It was, my gosh, you've been there all along. And it was so obvious the very moment that it was obvious and not a moment before. And I tried to take what was in my heart, what had been given to me, this strange and wonderful mystical knowledge, and give it to every newcomer I saw. And they just began to recoil. It's sort of like, I am a scientist conversation. <laughs> But when I said that to an old-timer, they just smiled and nodded and said, yeah, of course, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. No big deal, except it was a very big deal for me coming from where I was. But as I have trudged this, this road of happy destiny, this whole program, this God as I understand God, gets mysteriouser and mysteriouser. It's certainly not God is Santa Claus better than Santa Claus, because if I got what I asked for in my Christmas stocking, I would uh, be in very bad trouble. That happened many times, and it, it was a terrible thing. But I get what I need here, and I don't even know what that is. But in, 
in the 10-year plan, I can look back on it and realize that's exactly what I needed. I've gotten just exactly what I need for recovery. And this, this funny thing, the way this force acts in my life is, is mysterious. One of my sponsees last year, a few years ago, in fact, gosh, it's been several years now, was very sick. She had to have back surgery. And she had a very serious operation. And I prayed for her, as we do in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I prayed for her to get well, but she kept getting sicker and knew that she had to have surgery. And she had her surgery. And she seemed to be making a recovery, but instead she developed a painful and terrible condition that I'd never even heard of called reflex sympathetic dystrophy and it was very disabling. And she was in constant pain. And we were in a big, tightly knit group, and we all had a lot of concern for our friend. And I love my sponsees, and I wanted to do something for her. And we suggested every doctor we knew, and other people suggested healers, and we just gave up. And we got so desperate that we turned again to God. It sometimes happens out of complete <laughs> desperation. We even had a little group that went to our house, and we had a, a little meeting. It was just a prayer and meditation meeting. And you can't ask for anything in Alcoholics Anonymous except for God to be very present with Georgia, my sponsee, and to bring, God, please bring your healing power in this situation. Because we didn't know what to do. And days went by and weeks went by, and we kind of forgot about that evening because the prayer was not, not answered. And then way out in left field, another thing was going on. There was another person that was ailing in our group, Mike Finch, who's passed away now. He's one of the noblest people I've ever met in my life. He's a young man. He was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease and was told that he probably had a few years to, to live. And he would slowly become paralyzed to the point where he couldn't even scratch his own nose. And he began to decline. And he comforted my sponsee, Georgia, because he was so brave and so surrendered and so joyful. He spent all of his energy that he still had left talking with the people that he sponsored, being very active in Alcoholics Anonymous, being carried to AA conventions all over the United States, speaking whenever he could. He'd say things like, there's no treatment or cure for Lou Gehrig's disease except Alcoholics Anonymous. And he, was, he lived more years in the few years he had than most of us do in a long, long lifetime. So he, because he was in such physical distress, he could give great hope and courage to my sponsee. And she listened to him and saw the beauty in this man and fell deeply in love with him. And they had a two-year relationship, and she was able to move in with him and scratch his nose when it itched, and she prepared meals for him and fed him and took care of him, and it sure made his last years happier. And what happened, what happened to Georgia was that she recovered from RSD in being of service to this man who needed her so very much. And she'd wake up, she said, in a lot of pain in the morning, and she'd think, i got to get up and make breakfast for Mike. And she'd do it. And then, well into this, this story, a couple of us remember that night when we sat around saying a prayer for Georgia, and not having any idea how that was going to work out. I think we have to kind of take the 10-year the view to see a lot of this power working. Nobody had answers for these questions about how do I heal things at home? How can I make up for my selfish and self-centered nature? But after years went by, I realized that I was using the past tense when people talked about their children, and I realized that I had grown up with my children, and I'd learned to talk to them 
talk with them and listen to them because I worked with newcomers. And we grew into a relationship that just doesn't quit. And one day I realized that Bill's dad was right. AA taught me to be friends with other people, to try to serve other people. And I looked at Bill and I realized how much I loved this dear man. He had stood by me when very few men would would stand by a drunken and horrible wife in sickness and in health. And I thought, that's what love is all about. It's what we learn in Alcoholics Anonymous. We really are here for each other in sickness and in health. It's This fellowship is about much more than being sick or being well, as I learned with Mike and Georgia, who could have a lot of joy in sickness. It's about answering the phone at night, being here for you. It's about for better or for worse, and I hope until death do us part. And after the years went by, another intractable problem was solved. I'd made amends to that director of the lab, and I got to go back to work there. I don't know how that happened. I found that when I was working in the lab, I still broke glassware and blew up things. And I thought, this can't be. This is not a good podium story. (laughs) But because of the clear-headedness of sobriety, I faced the truth and realized I am a klutz in the lab. (laughs) The program teaches us to be unselfish, and for the safety of others, I cleared out and went back to school and learned a new profession. I went to library school and studied library and information science. And I've worked in that profession ever since and love it, love it to pieces because as alcoholics, we want more. And there's always more information every day. And I love it. And bring it on. (laughs) So I did get to go back to work and I learned how to work by making coffee at meetings, just showing up and saying, what do you want me to do around here? Usually they'll tell you if they pay you. And and in these last years, Bill and I were sitting in a front row in a little traditional ceremony, and my mother and my mother-in-law were there. And because of the immense step, I was able to say I'm sorry to all those folks and begin to change my conduct and grow into a new relationship with them. And we watched our three walk down the aisle in three different ceremonies, saying those wonderful words, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor. And I looked at Bill, and I looked at my mother and my mother-in-law, and Bill was so happy, proud of, of his beautiful bride, our firstborn, taking those vows. And I just looked around as a self-obsessed alcoholic and thought, They're looking at us. They think we're just a big, happy family, if they only knew. (laughs) But I knew, and it made me appreciate more than ever the miracle of this program. And my mother uh, became too weak to take care of herself, and my husband said, would you want her to move in with us? And I said, yes, I do. I could never have asked him for that after all those years of being such a parasite. But he willingly accepted her into our home, and I was able to take care of her in the last three years of her life. And she just passed away a little over a year ago. And in those last years, she became weaker and weaker, and it got to the place where I was taking care of her. I had become the parent. I had always felt dirty, dirty inside, because of the way I had treated her. And I just felt, you were goodness itself. How can I ever make up to you? And I was given this opportunity to take care of her. And she was always... a well-adjusted person so she could receive that love and be grateful for it. And those were fun and sweet years. And as her life was ending, as she was moving on to the larger life, three little grandsons came into the world and she got to see them and hold them, four generations of us in a room. And she said that she never thought that she'd live long enough for, for her. But This is the icing on the cake, she said. And I didn't think I'd ever be able to experience these little ones either. You see, I wasn't even present when my kids were born. I was in outer space somewhere, and I missed it all. 
And yet I saw these young women coming in. I even sponsored many of them with these new little sober babies. And I loved it. And I experienced a lot of joy, but I knew that that was not, not for me. Until I was in the room when little Peter James came in to the world, my first little grandson, all pink and screaming. And I got to hold him shortly after he was born. And I just thought, a second chance, a second chance. I believe this program is about second chances, or seventh chances, or tenth chances, however many we need to receive what God wants to give us, to learn what God wants us to know, to become what God wants us to be. I believe it's all about second chances, and I thank you and the power of this program for my second chance at life. Thank you.